The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, and at this time of Christmas, we're just continually reminded how important it is for us to make sure that our focus remains upon what you have done for us and that you sent the eternal second person of the Trinity into human history to take on full, true humanity, that he might go to the cross and die for our sins. Father, keep our focus on the realities of Christmas, that we might be an effective witness for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Open your Bibles to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. Now, as we go through this section of Genesis, we're faced with something that is a little bit different from what we've been faced with before in terms of the structure of the text. The text really is an ongoing narrative, whereas as we think back to instances in Abraham's life or incidences in Jacob's life, they were these isolated incidences that almost went just chapter by chapter, and each chapter was an isolated incident. But what we have starting in chapter 42, even though it stretches out over a long period of time, is an ongoing narrative that covers about four or five chapters. And it's a, we can't just take it all in one chunk. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. But it all fits under one basic umbrella. It's not like we're coming into this and there's five or six different doctrines in every paragraph like we see on Thursday night when we're going through Hebrews. But that the entirety of this section of Genesis really de- illustrates just a couple of basic doctrines. And they're very important to understand, and part of it has to do with God's plan for Israel. Part of it has to do with important principles in the spiritual life. The overriding principle that is illustrated in these sections of Genesis, from the initial events of Joseph being given the coat of many colors, all the way through his death at the end of chapter 50, is the principle laid out in the promise of Romans 8:28, and we know that he works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And the point is that even though we don't see the pattern, even though God doesn't tell us ahead of time what he is doing, there is a pattern that, and purpose to history. And not only the mega history in terms of what's happening with nations and what's happening with people and what's happening in the large trends of the age, but what's happening in the history of our individual lives. And that's what we see in Joseph, is that God is involved in the details of Joseph's life. But Joseph doesn't see what we see. We have the divine perspective because we know where Scripture is headed. We know what eventually happens. We see how God, and we know how God has already worked all of these details together towards the ultimate good of his plan and his purpose. But when you look at this from Joseph's perspective, from the perspective of being down in 
the mire, being down in the pit, being in the prison, or being in the position of the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph doesn't necessarily see how the details are fitting together. But as we get into chapter 42, I think that things are beginning to become clear to him. But there's some important things that have to be worked out. One of the things we learn from a study of any Old Testament narrative book, such as Genesis or the, or the Pentateuch as a whole or Samuel, Kings, is that history is important. It's not only the large trends of history, but the history of our lives, and that God has a plan and a purpose. And in the outworking of his plan and purpose, we always run into that that uh, great challenge of trying to deal with the sovereignty of God on the one hand and his control over history to bring history to the conclusion that he desires. And on the other hand, the individual responsibility and human uh, volition and human will. And these things work together in history in such a way that God's sovereignty is never compromised because he is the absolute and ultimate ruler in the universe. But under the umbrella of his sovereignty, under the umbrella of his power, his omnipotence, God is able to allow men the freedom to make decisions to introduce chaos what appears to us to be absolute uncontrolled chaos and violence into history, but God's power, His omnipotence, His intelligence, His omniscience, His knowledge of all the details down to the most microscopic, seemingly inconsequential details is such that He is still able to orchestrate everything to bring about that which he desires in history, yet without violating the principle of human volition and human responsibility. And this comes under the umbrella doctrine of divine providence. And we see how this works in a lot of ways in the life of Joseph. First of all, let's just think our way through what we've seen in Joseph up to this point. Initially, we see that God chose Joseph of the twelve brothers, God selects Joseph not for salvation, because I'm convinced that all the brothers are saved, but he selects Joseph to be the path of blessing through whom he will bless not only the rest of the family, but he will bless all of mankind. He will bless Egypt. He will bless all the surrounding nations during this time of famine. So we see that God chooses Joseph to be the path of the promised blessing. That takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham land, seed, and that he would be a worldwide blessing. So we see this that Joseph is going to be the path of the promised blessing, and this is consistent with the principle that has been followed with with, um, Isaac and with Jacob, that the uh, elder brother, Ishmael, served Isaac and And Esau served Jacob, that the elder serves the younger, and Joseph is the younger that the brothers will serve. Now, God prepares Joseph for this in one sense by giving him some special revelation, two dreams that we saw in chapter 37. And in those dreams, God shows Joseph that sometime in the future, his family, his brothers, and his father will bow down before him. Now, that comes to fulfillment in this chapter, chapter 42. But he prepares Joseph through that dream, and that then comes back in this chapter. Third, then, following that, even though God shows Joseph what the future will hold, that indeed you will be in this position where your brothers will bow down to you, and they will be under your authority, God has to prepare him for that. It's not just going to happen. And even though God has a plan and purpose for all of us to serve in the millennial kingdom as priests and kings, it's not just going to happen. He has to take us through a training process that includes the same kinds of things that Joseph went through. Before we are going to be put in a position of responsibility, we have to be prepared to be in that position of leadership and responsibility. So God takes Joseph through a specially designed leadership training institute. And he starts off being the object 
of his brother's hatred. And I don't think that um, anything is quite as difficult for most people to handle as not just rejection, but hostile rejection. And we, we saw that his brothers were so angry with him, they wouldn't even talk to him. They have just this, this, this profound hatred and malice toward him that they conspire together to murder him because of their extreme hatred for him. And instead, we see that, that through the intervention of Reuben and Judah in two different ways, God is at work to foil the murder plot, but he doesn't impose himself on their volition. They, they, make, they make choices. They make their own responsible choices. Uh, Reuben makes a choice that he's just going to uh, do something to hide Joseph and to protect him. And then Judah decides, makes another choice, and that is, well, let's sell him into slavery and make some money. But we see the unseen hand of God working behind the scenes to not only protect Joseph's life, but also to move him in the direction that he needs to be in order to provide a future protection for the people. So in that conspiracy, the brothers hate him, and yet God takes all of that evil, and he works it together for good, and Joseph is sold as a slave to the Midianite slash Ishmaelite traders. He's taken to Egypt where he's sold into slavery to the house of Potiphar. Now, what a coincidence. He's in the house of Potiphar. Here's Potiphar. He's like the chief captain in Pharaoh's personal guards. He is the commandant of the elite troops that guard and protect the life of the Pharaoh. So he is in a position, much like the head of the Security Council in the U.S. perhaps, or the Secret Service, someone like that, who is unseen but always present in the highest places of government in Egypt. So that over the ten or so years that uh, Joseph is serving Potiphar, he gets to know who's who. He, he's like an invisible fly on the wall. Nobody pays attention to the servants or the waiters or the, or the maids, and they talk about everything in front of him. So this was invaluable training for Joseph to, to be exposed to all of this and to, to observe and to see all of the inner workings within the court of the Pharaoh. And then, of course, he has to, he, God blesses him throughout this time. And he blesses him and, and, um, prospers him and, and Potiphar raises him to the highest position in Potiphar's household. And God blesses him tremendously, the text says. But, and pay attention to this, he doesn't bless Joseph because Joseph is so obedient to God. Because you see, there's all kinds of believers in the world that work hard and are diligent and are dedicated, faithful believers who don't get promoted to positions of influence and power like Joseph is promoted. Not everybody gets that. It's not because of Joseph's obedience that puts him in that position. It's God's sovereignty. Joseph's responsibility is to work hard, to be faithful, to do his work as unto the Lord, which is so clear that he's mastered that because when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, Joseph just just cries out, this would be a great sin against God. His total focus is that he's there in Potiphar's household not to serve Potiphar, just like you're there not to serve Exxon or Shell or... Uh, Schlumberger or Pennies or Sears or whoever it is that you work for, you're there to work as unto the Lord. And Joseph understands that and he is consistently faithful. But God isn't promoting him because Joseph is faithful. He's promoting him because, because that's God's plan for preserving the seed, to bring them out of, of the land of Canaan and down into Egypt. So we have to always understand that grace is always operative. This happens to be God's plan for Joseph. But he is faithful and he goes through the uh, training courses that God has for him. So Joseph is, not only is Joseph blessed, but Potiphar is blessed. And Potiphar realizes that his blessing comes from Joseph. So again, it's that outworking that principle that other nations, other peoples were to be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. So in this same context, Joseph is learning leadership. 
He's learning responsibility. He's learning how to handle situations and how to handle people. And he learns all the inner workings of the government. Then he's tested again with another type of undeserved suffering. He's got that undeserved suffering from the hostility of his brothers. And now Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him. He performs perfectly in the test. He gets an A+. Nobody could handle the test, test better. And then what happens? God promotes him. Now he gets put into prison. See, the way we think things ought to go is that if we do right, God's going to bless us. And if we do wrong, God's going to discipline us and lower the boom. But it doesn't always happen that way because God knows more than we do. He's got a whole lot more data in, in his computer than we have. And this is what Job is all about. As you go through the whole story of Job, the, his friends always come to him and say, Job, the reason you lost everything is because you sinned. And yet... Four or five times at the beginning of Job, God says, Job is upright and blameless. He's a man who fears God and does everything right. And then he loses everything. And that's just backwards to the way we want to think and the way the prosperity crowd wants people to think today that if you just say the right words and if you just pray the prayer of Jabez 59 times, you know what I'm talking about? Pray the prayer of Jabez 59 times every day, then then God will bless you. But that's not what the Scriptures show. God isn't blessing Joseph because of Joseph. God is blessing Joseph because of who and what he, God, is, not because of who and what Joseph is. So Joseph goes through the test. He goes into prison. But what happens? God promotes him in the prison because that's where that's where God wants him to be. That reminds me of... A uh, story I was reading in a Voice of the Martyrs uh, newsletter yesterday about a pastor in Vietnam, who uh, or an evangelist actually in Vietnam, who was giving the gospel and was so effective, so many people were getting saved that the communist authorities had him arrested and put him in prison. And then he had a captive audience. And he was just leading so many prisoners to Christ in the prison that they went to him and they said, well, you were given a five-year sentence. You've been here two years. We want to let you out. And he said, no, I demand that I be allowed to serve my full five years. His wife was all in favor of it. He had his captive audience. He stayed there for the full five years because he had a, he had a very effective ministry leading uh, men in that prison uh, to salvation. So God had a plan for Joseph, and that plan was for him to be in prison. And while he's there, after a short time, there's the initial episode of the two, the two dreams, the dream of the cupbearer and the dream of the butcher. And we've gone through the details there, and he uh, gave the interpretation of those dreams, and almost immediately they were fulfilled, and those prophecies were fulfilled in, in precise detail. The cupbearer was restored to his position, and the butcher lost his head. But... Joseph had encouraged the cupbearer, remember me when you come before Pharaoh. But, see, Joseph is functioning in terms of his responsibility. And like I said, I'm not sure Joseph was doing anything wrong. He's not trying to manipulate, necessarily manipulate the situation. A lot of people think that's what's going on. But you see, it wasn't God's timing yet. See, a lot of times, you've heard people say this, there are things you shouldn't pray for. No, you can pray for a lot of things. Sometimes God says no. That doesn't mean it was wrong to ask. Because the promise of Scripture is you have not because you ask not. So just because you ask, just because Paul asked for the removal of the thorn in the flesh, doesn't mean Paul was wrong to ask for it. It's just that God had a different plan. So Joseph says, remember me before Pharaoh and let me out of here. This is, this is my story. But God had another plan, so God caused the cupbearer to forget all about Joseph. He was so excited about getting restored to his position of power, he just forgot about Joseph. And then two years goes by, which we studied last time, and the Pharaoh had his two dreams. And as soon as he starts talking about these dreams to the cupbearer, he immediately remembers. Yeah, what a coincidence. You see how God is working. Joseph is doing what he's supposed to do. And God is working to bring about that which he has planned. So you see those two streams of thought going on in the passage. And in chapter 41, we see that, that Joseph is brought out of prison. He properly interprets the 
uh, dream of Pharaoh and gives him wise advice on how to implement it. The dreams pointed out that there would be seven years of famine, I mean seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine, and that this was going to be uh, extreme prosperity followed by extreme famine, and all the world would be affected by this, that meaning not the entire globe, but all of the, the known universe for them, which was the Mediterranean area around Egypt. Well, the Pharaoh asked Joseph, well, how would you handle it? Joseph gave him a detailed plan, told him just how to structure everything, told him what his, uh, all his logistical needs were going to be, and Pharaoh was so impressed with his wisdom and skill that he decided right there that Joseph was the man who should be put in charge of everything. So he promoted Joseph to be the second person in the land, the second highest authority in the land of Egypt, and no one had any more authority than Egypt. So Joseph, of course, dresses like an Egyptian. He's already come out of prison. He shaved his head to comport with the, uh, the, the, the mode of dress for the Egyptians so that in all, for all practical purposes, anybody coming before him would think that he was just another Egyptian leader. And he is prospered and blessed by God again, not because of what he's done, but because that's God's plan within the broader structure of what God is doing to bring the descendants of Abraham out of Israel and down to Egypt to build a protective womb around them so that they can grow to a large nation and not be threatened by what was already happening, the assimilation of the Jews to the paganism of the Canaanites. Now, in chapter 42, we start seeing how this is brought to bear, how this begins to happen. And I want you to remember that God's been setting the stage for this for 20 years. Sometimes he may take longer, sometimes shorter. Sometimes we get impatient. But God took 20 years to get Joseph to the point of chapter 42 and to get the brothers to the point of chapter 42. Now remember, uh, Joseph could have been nursing a real load of anger and bitterness and vindictiveness for 20 years because of what those brothers had done. But because Joseph is grace-oriented, because he's doctrinally oriented, because he is oriented to the plan and the purpose of God, he he has understood what God was doing, that God had a plan and a purpose in bringing him to Egypt and in doing this. And even though he may not know all the details yet, when he, we get into the beginning of this chapter in this first scene, where the, or the second scene, where the brothers suddenly appear in the court of Joseph to ask for grain, it's at that point, I believe, that Joseph began to put everything together and realize what God was doing. But Joseph also understood that before the plan could go to the next level, the sin and the guilt of the brothers had to be dealt with. And that's the same principle we see over and over again in all all of history and in our individual lives, is sin has to be dealt with. There has to be forgiveness and reconciliation before the plan can go forward. And if the brothers were still mired in their petty jealousies and their self-serving attitudes as they had been when they sold Joseph into slavery, then the plan couldn't go forward. He couldn't trust them, so there had to be this testing. So that's the focus of this first major episode here and we have three scenes in this chapter in the first scene we're back in Canaan with Jacob the father and and the brothers and they are beginning to experience the full impact of this massive famine that is affecting the Middle East the second scene begins in verse 6 and goes down to verse 26 and this is involves the brothers and Joseph in Egypt. And then the third scene is when the brothers return to Canaan, return back to Jacob with the grain that they have brought, but they're absent a brother. And once again, these boys have to come home to daddy minus one of his sons and with extra money. And you can just imagine Jacob's no fool. Remember, he was the original swindler. 
Okay, remember? He was always trying to work the angles. So he understands that. And now these brothers are going to come home minus Simeon, and they're going to have they're going to want to take Benjamin, his pride and joy, back. And he doesn't trust him after the, after the loss of Joseph. So he's he's looking at this thing at the end of this chapter, saying, "I've already lost two boys. I'm going to risk a third one." And that's where this chapter is going to end. So let's look at the beginning. In the first five verses, we see how God is working out the greater good, which is His plan for Israel through the normal circumstances of life. But who controls the circumstances of life? God does. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of the agricultural dynamics. We're not told precisely why this famine has occurred, but it's probably a combination of meteorological agricultural factors, and so it's affecting all of the ancient world. Now, one of the things that always appeals to me as I think about this is that we're at about a a period of time about 600 years after the Noahic flood if we're going to believe precise biblical chronology somewhere five, 600 years after the flood now the flood was this massive explosion into all of the systems of the earth meteorological systems the oceanographic systems uh, biological systems everything got affected by by the flood but primarily it is meteorology and there are various models that are set up by some of the meteorologists who work with the Institute for Creation Research which predicts patterns which seem to fit the ice age flows that um, that we see uh, evidence of in geology. And what this would have done, the idea here is that uh, the, the flood was like throwing a huge boulder into a pond of water. And you take some five-ton boulder and you drop it into a pond of water, and it's going to set up huge waves. And the closer you are to the center of the impact, the higher the distance between the top of the waves and the bottom of the trough. And as you go out in time from the point of impact, the waves become less and less extreme, and the distance between the the waves expands. Now, if you think of history and meteorology that way, what the theory is, is that as the flood hit, it had such an impact on meteorology that in the years subsequent to the flood, there were these massive uh, oscillations in temperature so that you would have an ice age for 25 or 30 years, not for thousands of years. And, and then there would be a warm-up. So you had global cooling and global warming, global cooling and global warming. And of course, if you've got a, an ice pack going all the way down into the middle of Western Europe or down into the middle of North America, then those bands of of desert that we now have, the Sahara Desert, North Africa, and such, would have been very uh, humid, would have been very wet, there would have been a very temperate climate, which is what we saw at the beginning with Abraham, where Abraham's talking to Lot, remember? And uh, says, you know, pick all the land you want. And Lot looked out there and saw the land around the Salt Sea and said, oh, man, that, that land is well watered and beautiful, like all the land down, going all the way down to Egypt. Now, those of us who were there this summer realized that the last adjective you would ever use to describe that part of the world today is well watered. It gets an average rainfall of about an inch a year. So something's changed. So apparently at that time, you're st- all through this period of the patriarchs, you're still getting these big swings in meteorology. And then there was just prior to that that there was a famine in the land, which is why Abraham first went down to Egypt where he picked up Hagar. And then later on there's another famine. And so these kinds of things were happening meteorologically, and I think that it fits a model of a a creationist model and a worldwide flood. And God, of course, is the one who controls meteorology and the weather. So now this this is having an impact all around the Mediterranean. And we read in verse 1 that when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why are you looking at one another? And it's like these guys are sitting around there doing nothing, playing solitaire, and they can't come up with any solution. Jacob's a little irritated with him, and 
and wants to get them off their computer games. So he says, I just want to see if anybody's listening out there. says, why, why are you just sitting around looking at each other? Indeed, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. They haven't come up with this information. He has. There's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us that we may not die. So he commissions them to head down. And so ten brothers go down. They don't take Benjamin with them. Benjamin isn't getting out of his father's sight. He doesn't trust the other brothers. So that's verse 4 reminds us of that. And then in verse 5 we read that they went down there to buy grain and, and because the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, we're reminded of Joseph's position in verse 6. And here when we get into verse 6, we see that God is working through Joseph to test the brothers. And as part of this test, what God is doing is He wants to expose the guilt that they have for what they did to Joseph. He's, he, he's not making them feel guilty. We're going to get into a study of what guilt is in just a minute. But He wants to expose their real legal guilt so that they can deal with it in terms of confession and restoration and reconciliation so that the plan of God will then go forward. In verse 15, Joseph explains the test. He says, In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your brother comes here. So Joseph really gives them two tests because he, in these tests he wants to see if they have changed over the last 20 years. But furthermore, through these tests, God is using the tests to peel back the years where they have just insulated themselves to this sin from 20 years ago, and it hasn't been dealt with yet. And it has to be dealt with the right way, not by just going out through some kind of emotional experience or anything, but by dealing with it uh, with God and with with Joseph, and that's a major part in this whole story of Joseph, is Joseph's forgiveness of the brothers and their reconciliation, which is crucial to the unity of the of the nation as they go forward. So I have a couple of principles that come out of this. First of all, that guilt, true guilt, when we sin, we're guilty. Not that you have Guilt feelings. We need to make a distinction between psychological guilt, which is remorse, and legal guilt. When you go out and you break a law, you're doing 85 in a 70. Now, some of you might feel remorseful about that. But others of you have had your consciences so seared by that that you never... We never. I'll put myself in that boat. We never think twice about it. The only time I get remorseful about it is when all of a sudden I hear a siren. And then I'm just sorry I got caught. But there's no guilt feelings there. There's only true guilt. Other times you have guilt feelings when there's no guilt. When you're driving down speed limit 70 and you're actually doing 68 and all of a sudden that that police car behind you cranks up his siren because he's going after the other guy and your heart drops and your pulse goes sky high and you just, oh no, I'm finally getting it. See, that's just emotional guilt. That's psychological guilt. That's just, that's not real guilt. Now, the reason I explain this is because over the years and back when I used to do a lot of home Bible studies, I always got so many questions about this from people because so many people walk around life with just this load of guilt that they carry with them. And they, they, there's a com- they, they, they have shame sometimes associated with that, depending on what they're guilty about. But there's no sense of real, genuine Forgiveness, they don't understand the grace of God and they don't understand the dynamics of forgiveness at the cross. Then on the other hand, you have the people who understand it only too well. That's the licentious crowd. So they just understand it real well. And to them, sin doesn't have any impact whatsoever. So the biblical truth is in between those, those two extremes. Guilt actually, when you've already confessed your sin and God has forgiven you, Guilt is simply a way of of saying that God didn't forgive me and that grace wasn't good enough. 
And so that becomes a sin in itself if you've already confessed the sin. So our first principle is that guilt has to be acknowledged and responsibility admitted. And then there is restoration of fellowship. And this happens on two planes. It happens on a vertical plane in terms of our relationship to God. But it also has to happen on a horizontal plane in our relationship to other people. Because we are to forgive one another. When Peter asked Jesus, said, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive him? I know none of you have ever been in situations where you thought that. I have once or twice. Lord, I've got to forgive him again? The Lord said, well, Peter, 70 times 7. Wow. You know, that means you never stop. If they keep screwing up the same way, no matter how hurtful, harmful, and devastating it is to you, you don't carry along a load of bitterness and anger and resentment. You forgive them so that you can move on. Otherwise, you just become anchored by their carnality. So we have the first principle that guilt has to be acknowledged, responsibly admitted, and then restoration of fellowship. And the second principle is that forgiveness must follow admitted uh, when once somebody admits responsibility for and confession of sin, then forgiveness must on our part must follow. And as Joseph is going to recognize and state at the end of the book, when the brother when Jacob finally dies and the brothers are convinced he's finally going to execute all of them. He says, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He understood that God's sovereignty was overriding their carnality. And so he had a relaxed mental attitude about all the wrong that they had done him because he was oriented to God's grace. So we're introduced now to Egypt in verse 6. Joseph is governor over the, the land and it was he who sold to all the people of the land all the grain. So they've stored up grain for seven years. And they've been storing up 20% of the grain every year. So they have more than enough for their own needs, enough to sell to uh, the people who come from the surrounding uh, territories and countries. And the, we're told that the brothers come in. They bow down before him. It's the fulfillment of the dream. Now, verse 8 is going to tell us that. But Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them. I'm sure there was a level with him that he wasn't sure what they were doing there, why they were there, or if he could yet trust them. And he knows that he's dressed in all of the garb of an Egyptian official, that he has groomed himself, he's shaved his beard, he shaved his head. He no longer looks... Like a, like a Semite, he looks like an Egyptian, and they wouldn't recognize him anyway because he's changed a lot over the last 20 or so years. Remember, he spent 10, 10 years or so in Potiphar's household. He spent another two to three years in prison, and now he's gone through seven, at least seven years of, or seven years of prosperity plus at least two years of famine. So, at least 19 years has gone by, maybe 20, and he's changed a lot. So they don't, they don't recognize him at all. So he decides that he's going to uh, play the devil's advocate, as it were, and find out what they're doing. He begins to interrogate them in verse 7. And again, we're reminded in verse 8, the Holy Spirit wants you to pay attention to that, that Joseph recognized them, but he, they did not recognize him and then we're told in verse 9 that he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them and now they're fulfilled well he then falsely accuses them just as he of course had been falsely accused but he's not accusing them out of malice there's no sense of vengeance or hatred or bitterness on the part of Joseph here he's he's evaluating them this this uh, Hebrew word that we find here for testing that shows up in verse 15 is a Hebrew word, bakan, which has the same kind of idea that the Greek word dokimazo has. It's the idea of 
re- evaluating something to bring out what its uh, true character is. So he says, okay, I'm going to falsely accuse them and see how they handle that false accusation. They're going to react in anger and bitterness and self-serving uh, attitude just like they did years ago. Remember, he grew up with them. He knows how rotten these boys are. So he accuses them falsely to see what they're made of. He says, you're spies. You've come to spy out the land, the nakedness of the land. They deny it completely. He says, no, 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 no. We, we're just here to buy food. And again, he, they, they say, we're all one man's sons. We're honest men. Well, I wouldn't say that, but they're servants and not spies. But he goes on to them. He says, no, I don't believe you. You've come to spy out the land and see our, our, our vulnerabilities. And they again reaffirm who they are, that they're, they're 12 brothers, the sons of one man. The youngest is with our father. One is no more. See what's just happened? As he put the pressure on him, that guilt of the way they had treated him, that past sin now pops up to the surface in their memory because it has to be dealt with. And that's what God is doing through this is they've got to recognize before they recognize the sin before they deal with it in confession and they can go forward. So Joseph then says, no, you're spies and I'm going to test you. He says, here's the test. Uh, you're all going to stay here and we're going to call for the younger brother to come and I'm going to go throw you in prison. I remember he, they had put him in the pit and then sold him into slavery. But he's not doing this out of anger. He's doing it to evaluate him. So he puts him into the pit and tells him that the first way they're going to handle this is to send one person back to get Benjamin. But after three days, he changes the game plan. In verse 18, uh, they come out and he says to them, Do this and live, for I fear God. What did he just say to them? He is communicating to him them that he's not into this idolatrous system of the Egyptians. He fears Elohim. So they are that ought to cause their ears to perk up a little bit. Not that they did, but it should have. And he says, If you're honest men, let I'll just, instead of sending one man back and keeping the rest of you here, I'm going to keep one here and send the rest of you home. And they said to one another, Notice what's happening now. First of all, we saw the, the remembrance of Joseph, that, they, that he was no more back in verse 13. And now in verse 21, they say to one another, now they're speaking Hebrew, and they're talking to each other in Hebrew, and they don't know that Joseph can understand them, but he's listening in on their conversation. And they say to one another, we're truly guilty concerning our brother." Wow, now isn't that important? They are recognizing their true guilt, and they're also realizing that maybe God's finally dealing with us. See, God always deals with it. It may not be where you can see it, and it may take 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, but God deals with it one way or another. So they say, we're truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not listen Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And in the Hebrew, there's an interesting play on words here, which brings out the emphasis on the anguish of his soul on the one hand and the anguish that they're going through right now in their their distress, and there's no one to listen to them, they think. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you? Now Reuben is bringing up the fact that I told you so. So now we know what he's talking about. And he, But in doing that, Joseph remembers that Joseph is going to learn that it's Reuben that was trying to protect him. So Reuben says, now his blood is required of us. But verse 23 tells us, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. This there are three or four of these scenes that we're going to see with Joseph and his brothers that are so poignant. He has a real love for these brothers. As, as hurtful and as shameful as their behavior has been to him, he has a real love for them. And when he hears them talking, he realizes that they have recognized their sin and they've admitted and acknowledged it. 
and that that is genuine. And as a result, he's overcome with emotion, and he has to turn his back on them and hide his face so they don't see uh, him weeping in joy because of their recognition of sin. So he turns back to them, he talks with them, and he decides on a course of action to take Simeon and keep him back and send the rest of them back to the brothers. And so the scene changes in verse 25. Before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about sin and guilt. I pointed out that a big issue in this chapter is dealing with their guilt, their real guilt, their legal guilt. Guilt existentially for us as human beings is the violation of the standard of God. God has a universal law. And when we violate that law, His holy character, when we sin, we become guilty. And man is born in a state of guilt because we have received the imputation of Adam's original sin. So we are born with a legal guilt for sin, and that legal issue has to be resolved. Now one of the problems that we're running into today is that the culture in which most of us grew up no longer exists. We actually live at just the, the tail end of that of that culture. If you're here and you're under 40, then you don't know what I'm talking about because you grew up with a different mindset. If you're older than 40, if you're older than probably 50, then you know what I'm talking about. America in our history moved through a major shift historically through most of the 20th century where the thought forms of Americans shifted from a moral-slash-legal framework to a psychological-therapeutic framework. And it changed the way people look at life and at relationships, at ethics, at morals, at guilt. All these things change with that shift in orientation. Now, the old view... The view that dominated for centuries, actually, was the product of a theistic worldview that came from the Bible. Because up until the 19th century, nearly everyone believed in an absolute creator. Not necessarily a biblical view of God, but at least an absolute creator, and that man was a creature. And even though they might not have been Christians or biblical in their thinking... They were, in a general sense, just as most Christians in our world today think in terms of a postmodern or secular humanistic framework because that's the culture in which they grew up. You understand what I'm saying? See, most of you don't realize the depths to which you have been in, impacted in your thinking as a Christian by the, the cultural water you swam in from the day you were born. Now, if you grew up in a solid Christian home, it may not be as extreme. But if you didn't, then then you will you'll uh, manifest that. So, if you're a Christian today, you grew up in a culture that's secular, humanistic, or now postmodern. If you were an uh, an unbeliever in the early 19, early 1800s or 1700s, you were in a theistic, biblically informed. Judeo-Christian worldview, and so you still thought within that format, even though you weren't necessarily a Christian. But everything changed as we move into the 1900s, and what happened was there was a move from a legal-based view of life, a view of law, not law in terms of national law, but law in terms of a universal law that governed life, that there was a creator who was holy and righteous, and there were absolute universal standards. As a result, the universe was governed by laws of morality. Well, what happened in the shift into the 20th century is that the universe began to be viewed within a psychological, therapeutic framework. Now, what happened? We had a guy named Sigmund Freud who popped up in the late in the late 19th century. You had Freud, Marx, and Darwin who all lived at the same time and they fed off of each other's ideas. And the result was that it laid the foundation for a totally new worldview for Western civilization 
in the 20th century. Marxism, Darwinism, and uh, Freudianism. So once this shift occurs from a legal-based view of life and a moral-based view of life to a psychological therapeutic model, a lot of other things happen. One thing that happened was that prior to the 1900s, people viewed all of us, we viewed human beings as a a collective whole, that generally man was viewed as created in the image of God, if you were a Christian. But man was viewed as special, human nature was viewed as special, and the focus was on humanity as a whole. But once you shift to a therapeutic model, the shift is no longer on mankind as a whole and serving mankind as a whole, but the shift goes to the self, and it's all about me. It's not about the human race or mankind anymore. Prior to this shift, mankind was important in and of himself, but now the emphasis is on the individual. See, no longer is man a creation of God in his image, but man is an accident of the cosmos. He's just a product of evolution. So the, the human race itself is important. It's just whatever it is I'm experiencing. Now, before the shift occurred, when you have a moral-slash-legal view of life, now pay attention to this. When you have a moral-slash-legal view of life, and when mankind is important, What else was important was that character was important. And so the emphasis was on character, and to develop character, you had to develop virtue. Virtue was related to universal absolutes, uh, standards of behavior. And if you lived before the 20th century and you picked up a self-help book, it wouldn't sound like the self-help motivational teachers today. The emphasis was on Character, the emphasis, the vocabulary of character emphasized words like uh, morality and integrity and uh, uh, work, words that related to a solid work ethic. Uh, character was important. But what's happened in the 20th century is you have a shift from character to personality. And so we look at celebrities and you look at leaders and what's important is their personality. TV feeds this. What's important is just what's on the surface, not what's behind, not not the character, not the integrity. And when you get into an emphasis on personality, the vocabulary shifts. What's important is you find words like dynamic or forceful, flamboyant, he's he's exciting, he's creative. That's the vocabulary of personality. Personality emphasizes self-fulfillment and self-realization. So there is a huge transformation that takes place. And we live now in a psychological therapeutic world. And a psychological therapeutic world is going to view guilt and shame differently from a legal, moral world. You understand what I'm saying here? This is very important. Because the average person today doesn't understand what real guilt is anymore. They think they, they don't longer think of guilt as the violation of an absolute standard. What, they, what they've replaced it with, see, under the moral model, guilt and shame were, could be used interchangeably because they, they were related. But now guilt is different from shame. Guilt is, is psychological, and shame is just the fact that something's happened in my life that I'm embarrassed about. And what has to be resolved is, is this problem of, of embarrassment. So I just have to get rid of value, any kind of value. See, that's the other thing. I left that out. When you shift from character and, and uh, integrity and the promotion of, of, uh, uh, in the promotion of virtue, what you go in, into a modern psychological model is a promotion of values. And values become relative. They are personal choices so that you have your values and I have my values and somebody else has their values. But values are no longer related to absolute virtues. So it's a, the, the vocabulary shift in all of this is very subtle, but it attacks the very notions of, of absolute standards 
of behavior. So now, we live in a world where vocabulary related to purpose and function in life is very different. In the old model, there was the vocabulary of salvation, justification, forgiveness. See, all these terms relate to understanding moral absolutes and a legal framework in the universe. But now the vocabulary of the therapeutic age is self-realization, psychological healing, Salvation is often presented in the sense of just kind of getting a, 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 a regenerated psychological uh, new self-image like uh, 20 years ago when Robert Schuller put out his book on self-image, The New Reformation. He said, you know, sin vocabulary was okay for the Reformation, but that's antiquated and outdated today. The problem today is people don't have a good self-image. Jesus didn't die for sin. He died so you can have a good self-image. Now, everybody go pat yourself on the back and we'll all be good. And see, you know, it was that teaching of Schuler's that he used to mentor uh, Rick Warren, the purpose-driven everything guy, and uh, Joel Osteen down here. Both were mentored by Robert Schuler. That's why if you listen to them, there is minimal mention of sin because the problem that they're solving in their approach to the Christian life isn't a problem of sin and genuine guilt of disobeying a holy, the holy righteous standard of God that can only be resolved by the death of Christ on the cross, whereas there's true forgiveness, the problem is psychological. It's therapeutic. You just have to uh, realize who God made you to be and go out and do it. And it's all this positive uh, self-image motivational kind of stuff. There's no real Guilt. There's only guilt feelings, and so you do away with all standards, and then there's no guilt feelings because everything's okay, and nobody has any standards anymore. Now, that wasn't the problem with Joseph's brothers, but that has always been a problem in history is people want to minimize the real guilt. And so God has to work in their life to expose that guilt so that they can then apply the biblical solution which is admission of sin, and then there's forgiveness, and then it's forgotten, and then we can move forward. So they go home, and on the way home, they, they run into another test. Joseph had commanded for all the brothers to take, their, take the sacks of grain, loaded it up, but he told his servants to put money, take all their money and put it back under the grain. And so on the way home, one of the brothers discovers the money, and their heart just fails. Verse uh, 28, their hearts failed them. They were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? See, there's a true guilty conscience there because the the conscience is the moral compass of the soul and it's informed with, with absolutes and they know they violated God's standard and there is punishment. And so they're, they're guilty. They haven't, they haven't realized that divine forgiveness yet and they know they just believe God's after them. So they go home to their father in Canaan. When they get back, they discover that there's money in everybody's sack. And now they're really concerned. Jacob, of course, doesn't want him to go back because he's lost another son. He's in prison back in Egypt. And so uh, they come back and um, uh, stay with Jacob until the food runs out. And they keep telling Jacob, we have to go back. He wants us to come back and bring uh, Benjamin with him. But Jacob refuses until the money runs out. And that's where we wrap up at the end of this chapter as to what they're going to do next. And Reuben says to the father, just take my sons as surety for Benjamin. And if, if I don't bring Benjamin back, kill them like Jacob would do that. So they are ready to go back, and Jacob is at a point where he is willing to let them go back and take Benjamin with him. So we'll go to the next stage in how God is exposing their sin to them so that there can be a resolution of sin and genuine forgiveness, not just some sort of psychological uh, manipulation, which is the kind of thing you usually have today. You can only get real forgiveness because... Sin is truly dealt with. And in Christianity, sin is dealt with by Christ on the cross. And that's the basis. No matter what is done, no matter what the sin is, 
It's paid for by Christ on the cross. So there is real forgiveness. And then we can move forward without carrying a ball and chain of guilt going forward. With our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. To see the outworking of your plan in the life of Joseph. And above all, to see the dynamics related to sin, confession, and forgiveness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.